as I was uh, in my own personal time with God this morning, before I was in a condition that I'd let any of you see me, with my first cup of coffee, I was in Romans 6. And, uh, and you know that part where, where uh, he says, Paul says that uh, we're to, in view of our new life in Christ, we're to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness to God. And there's a text note in there that says uh, the word instruments can also mean, the connotation can also mean weapons of righteousness. We're, we're to present ourselves as weapons of righteousness to God. What we're going to be talking about this morning is the process by which God fastens us, uh, fa- fashions us into weapons of righteousness, instruments of righteousness for his use. So let's, uh, let's ask him to bless our time together, shall we? Father, we thank you for this time, and I thank you for each person that you brought here this morning and, uh, and the unique purpose that you have for each of their lives and the unique plan that you want to accomplish through each one of us. And we'd ask you, Lord, that you'd uh, use this imperfect message and that you'd perfect it between the time it leaves my mouth and the time it reaches their hearts so that you'd do your transforming work in each one here this morning. We pray especially for our... Uh, our friends uh, over in Kenya this morning, for Mark as he teaches those pastors, for our medical folks as they demonstrate the love of Christ in a tangible way uh, to those people who are truly destitute. We, we pray that you, you will empower their efforts. And in terms of Mark's teaching, Lord, I pray that you give him exactly what he needs and that, uh, that the power of that teaching would uh, go on uh, through those pastors represented there to generation after generation of believers and that through the medical folks as they minister mercy that you'd open the hearts of those they minister to to the truth of the gospel and that uh, you'd bring physical healing and spiritual healing as well. We ask these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Operation Halyard was the top secret code name for what has been called the most daring rescue operation of World War II. Late in World War II, uh, as the Allies were pushing the Nazis back across Europe, uh, part of the mission was to bomb Nazi oil supply lines in southern Europe. And American air crews in B-17 flying fortresses and, and B-24 liberators flew mission after mission, hundreds and hundreds of missions, uh, many each day over southern Europe in an effort to cut those supply lines. Because they, the flights were so many and so predictable, they were easy targets for Nazi anti-aircraft weapons and, and German fighter planes. And so there were many air crews that were shot down um, many men lost their lives, and, and many others had to parachute from disabled planes. And they, uh, in this particular area, they, they parachuted over occupied Yugoslavia at the time. The Nazis uh, owned Yugoslavia at the time, and, and those airmen that bailed out fully expected to be captured or, or killed there. What they didn't know was that on the ground. Some remarkable rescue teams were already in place. Serbian peasants, freedom fighters, 
track the path of those floating airmen as they parachuted to earth and uh, race to where they landed to, to rescue them before the, the Nazis could arrive to capture or, or kill them. The same peasants risked their own lives by then feeding and sheltering and providing medical care and disguising those guys until they could be evacuated to, to safety. Many times they did that by hiding them in their own homes uh, with their own families. That's not the end of the story. While the American flyers had been rescued from the Nazis, their escape from enemy territory was not yet complete. And in fact, in order to win their freedom and return home, the Americans had to walk with their rescuers, sometimes for weeks, often in the dead of night, for many miles across Europe to a distant and remote location where a secret airstrip had been built for the specific purpose of evacuating those airmen to freedom. Now those, those airmen, those Americans, didn't know where they were going when they were following those Serbian freedom fighters. And, and they didn't know the way. In most cases, they couldn't speak the language. And so they had to just trust by faith that their rescuers were leading them to safety and, and to freedom. By the time it was over, those Serbian peasants had rescued over 500 American airmen, every one that had dropped into, into Yugoslavia and evacuated them all safely back to the United States. Operation Halyard is a great metaphor for what happens in our spiritual journey. Just as the Americans' rescue was not complete until they walked with their rescuers to freedom, so also, although we've been delivered from sin and death, uh, it's not just to wait for the bus to heaven, but it's to walk with our Savior uh, toward what he has for us, that is transformation into Im- his image and use as instruments by God in, in the advancement of his kingdom here. The bottom line is we've been saved not to wait, but to walk. And, uh, and in the remainder of the message this morning, I'd like to talk with you about what that means in practical terms what that walk with God looks like, how it's possible for us to do it. Let's take a closer look at Colossians 1. Does somebody have the page number in the Pew Bible? 156, is that about right? Just sing it out when you, when you get that uh, page number. Colossians 1. In my Bible, it's 1740. That won't help you a bit. 157, 156, right in that neighborhood. Okay, good. I'm going to start at verse 9, read verses 9 through 14 for our time this morning. Paul says in Colossians 1, beginning at verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, and and strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us, there's another rescue, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, verse 10, there are three things that Paul says there. First of all, to please him in all respects. In other words, to please God in every area of our lives. Secondly, to bear fruit in every good work, that is to accomplish things for God in his power that are, that are of eternal significance. And, and thirdly, to, to increase in the knowledge of God. Now, that's not just knowledge about God, but that is, that is uh, knowledge of God. That is to increase in the intimacy of our relationship with God. Now, does, does all that seem like a tall order to you? I know there are some of you that are saying, well, I, yeah, we can knock that out, Paul, between football games this afternoon maybe. But uh, to me, folks, that looks like uh, more than I can humanly accomplish. And, and I think that's the, that's the point. Um, what God's asking us to do is, uh, is beyond our capability. The, the problem is uh, sometimes we, our, our perspective gets a little bit skewed and we see the word worthy in that passage and right away we think we have to somehow become worthy. You know, we have to work that up. We, ha- we have to uh, generate some, some worthiness on our part. And the, and the message becomes sometimes that we have to try harder to be holy so that we can please God. And, and we beat ourselves up and uh, sometimes we beat those, up around, uh, those around us up when, when we don't measure up. And we create lists in our minds, you know. Uh, lists, first of all, of the things we do well. And, and those are the things we can take pride in and offer to God as, well, these must be pleasing to you, uh, Lord. Uh, and then there's, an, there's another, and, and those can be cause for self-righteousness. And, and on the other side of it, there, there's the other list that we'd prefer not to talk about, really. And that's the list of our habitual sins and, and failures and, and shortcomings, that we use that to heap shame on ourselves and, you know, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving and we use it to flog ourselves to try harder. Well, the accuser likes that list too. Satan uses that regularly, doesn't he, to, to pile on the guilt. Uh, he's a master at that and he says, well, what makes you think that God will accept you after what you did recently? Or what makes you think God can accept you, uh, the, the kind of person you are? And, and he tries to, to uh, undermine our, our confidence in, in what the Savior has done for us. And, and sometimes we, we create a, a kind of a two-tier approach to our life with God. We think, well, we'll accept the fact that, that we have salvation by grace, and that's a free gift. We, we acknowledge the fact that we can't get there by ourselves. But, but kind of for the other half of it, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we, we act sometimes as if, the rest of it is performance-based, as if God grades on the curve somehow. And I don't think that's what God has in mind at all. Worse yet, I think sometimes our churches reflect the message or project the message unintentionally that unless people on the outside get their act together and arrive at a certain entry-level holiness that uh, they need not apply. And, uh, and the church, we, we begin to think of the church as kind of a refuge for all God's holy people and uh, kind of a country club as opposed to uh, 
as opposed to what I think God intends for it to be, and that is an ER for broken people. Uh, especially if people look different from us or if they're carrying a lot of baggage. Sin does that to people. They carry a lot of baggage. Addictions, sins, body piercings, you, you name it. Anything that makes a person look different or act differently than us. Sometimes we, we subtly project the message that that, uh, that person is, is not welcome here. But Jesus has said that his work saves us not just once, but it saves us every day and transforms us in, over time into the kinds of people that reflect his image and his holiness. And that's what Paul says in, uh, in verses 12, four, 12 through 14, the, the passage we're looking at this morning. He says, Thanks. look at these four things he said that God has already done for us. He says that the Father has already qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption. You notice all those things, folks, are, are past tense. Those things have already been done. That, that's our, we've already been qualified. God sees us as holy and righteous because of what Jesus has done. And the rest of our lives, his project is to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. But that, that, is not, that does not have to do with our salvation. That is a free gift. And that is something that God's already given us. And, and uh, that, that is not going away. We're justified. We're declared not guilty once and for all based on God's grace. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans 5, 9, where he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace in your relationship with God because you're a child of grace? That's one of the things I want you to walk away with this morning. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Question, once I'm saved, don't I I still have to try hard to be holy? Well, what Paul says in verses 9 and 11 is this. We've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, here's a huge so that, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, you can't do any of those things as a human being unless you've been empowered by the filling of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The point is that all of the ability to do those things comes from God. That the work of God, start to finish, it is a work of grace in our lives. Uh, both our salvation and our transformation is, is all God's work. And it's all a work of grace. It's not something that we can gin up or work at or try harder at. That's hard for us to accept because we want to kind of earn our way and some of that's Americanism, and some of that's just being a human being. We want to we earn our way. And uh, most of the world's religions, if you look at them, are, diff- are just different flavors of works righteousness, aren't they? They're just different flavors of earning it ourselves. I talked to a, a woman yesterday who is a believer now who came out of the Jehovah Witness background, and she said, you wouldn't believe the rules that we had, the things that we had to do just to be acceptable to God in, in, uh, in that particular uh, cult or that particular religion. 
The distinguishing characteristic of Christianity among all the world religions is what? Grace. Grace, exactly. C.S. Lewis was at Cambridge. There was a conference at the time on world religions, and uh, uh, there were a number of scholars, uh, representative of all the great world religions, uh, discussing what was distinctive about Christianity. C.S. Lewis happened to be walking through. Somebody flagged him down. And they said, what do you think? We've been talking about this for some time, can't figure it out. And um, he said, what's distinctive about Christianity? Well, he said, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. It's a free gift. It's hard for us to accept. And, uh, and, and uh, none of the, it, it's distinct from the other world religions in the sense that we don't have to earn it. God has already given it to us. We just need to accept it. Both our salvation and a life that is worthy and pleasing to God is all the work of God from, from start to finish. And, and we couldn't do it if we tried. So my message to you, the word from the, the Lord for you this morning, is stop beating yourselves up because you're not holy enough or uh, you're not loving enough, you're not patient enough. That's all the work of God in your life, and he's prepared to do all that. He already knows. It's not a, this is not a newsflash for him that you and I don't measure up. He's got that, that part figured out, and he's provided for that. that. That's the great news. And for those of you who are laboring under a load of guilt, someone who may be here who thinks that because of what they've done or because of their history or their track record, that, that uh, somehow they're beyond the reach of God's grace, I'm telling you that's not true. God's grace extends to you. And he can, he can forgive you. And you can be one of his children as well uh, if you'll just accept the gift of grace that, uh, that God has given us in Jesus Christ. God's grace extends to you. Well, what's the secret of uh, living a life like God, uh, a life that is worthy and a life that is pleasing to God? Well, this, the secret is contained, among other places, in Colossians 2. We'll look at a couple verses there. Colossians 2, verses... Uh, Beginning at verse 2, Paul says, That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth, did you know you're wealthy, that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a, a true knowledge of God's mystery. Here's the mystery. The mystery is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up. Notice that having been firmly rooted, that, that happens at the point of salvation. When you came to, to uh, faith in Jesus Christ, you were, you were firmly rooted in Jesus Christ, and now you are being built up. That, that is happening now. You are being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him, get this, in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That is, everything about God dwells in Jesus Christ. And in him you have been made complete. You and I are complete in Jesus Christ. We have everything we need. And he is the head over all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Romans 6 talks about this as well. 
that our old person has died. Our, our old person, is, our, our experience is wrapped up with the experience of Christ on the cross. Our old person has died. Having been buried with him by baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out their certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Praise God for that. The secret is that Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is now living inside you and me in order to live out his life through us. And the secret to living a life that is pleasing to God is to stop trying to do it in our own effort and to allow Jesus Christ to live out his life through ours. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20. One of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament because it takes a lot of heat off me in trying to to live a godly life. This is what Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ, and and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Uh, Watchman Nee was a a beloved Chinese pastor and evangelist uh, for decades in in China. He he actually spent the last 20 years of his life uh, in a Chinese prison and did a lot of his writing from there. He died in 1972. If you haven't read his book, Normal Christian Life, it, it was really a pivotal book in maybe 35 years ago in my own experience. What Watchman Nee says about, uh, about our new life in Christ is this. God makes it quite clear in his word that he has only one answer to every human need, his son, Jesus Christ. In all his dealings with us, he works by taking us out of the picture and substituting Christ in our place. What does that look like in practical terms as we go to work in the morning, as we relate with our family members? Well, one thing it means is that we can stop trying to love that difficult person in our lives in our own effort. It will never work. And we can concede that we're incapable of doing that and ask God to live out the love of his son, Jesus Christ, through us. And and he will do that in response to our prayer. We can acknowledge that we'll never be able to overcome the habitual sins that we struggle with in our own effort. And and we can say, God, I'm going to give up the fight, and I'm going to ask you to let your son live out his life through me in all purity and holiness and and, uh, the character of Jesus Christ. We can recognize that we may never, in in our own strength, desire to read the word of God desire to spend time with God in prayer, that, that may never, in, in our, as human beings, that may never be our desire, but we can ask God for that. And, and, he, and he will give us that through his son, Jesus Christ. All the riches are available to us in Christ, and, and Christ lives in us. The bottom line is that we can't live a holy life by ourselves any more than we can accomplish salvation on our own. You just can't get there from here. Start to finish, it is the work of God in our lives. The late British major W. Ian Thomas describes trying to live life in our own strength. He says, there are those who have a life they never live. They've come to Christ and thanked him only for what he did 
but they do not live in the power of who he is. Between the Jesus who was and the Jesus who will be, they live in a spiritual vacuum, trying with no little zeal to live for Christ a life that only he can live in and through them, perpetually begging for what in him they already have. Does that mean there's nothing left for us to do? Well, let's talk about training versus trying. You know, there's a car wash on the south side of town uh, in back of the speedway that I often go to bring my car. And what if, what if the next time I went there and uh, I got gas and you know how you can pay for the car wash at, your, at, at the pump. What if the, the next time I went there, I paid for the car wash and pumped my gas, then I got back in my car and uh, just waited for it to be washed. And I'd wait, and I'd wait, and I'd be out there, you know, 10 minutes or so. Finally, I'd be a little annoyed. I'd go into the, the clerk, and I'd say, you know, I, I paid for a car wash, but I've been out there 10 minutes waiting, and my car still isn't washed. Well, she'd probably look at me like I wasn't the brightest bulb in the string. And, and then she'd say, well, sir, you need to understand, you, you really need to drive your car around back and position it in the car wash in, in order to get it washed. Okay, well, I, I can do that. Now, let me ask you this. When you get in the automatic car wash, do you get out and wash the car yourself? Some of you sense an ambush, but you're... <laughs> well, no, you don't. In fact, it's not recommended, is it? You, you could get a good scrubbing yourself if you did that. No, all you do is position your car in the wash, and the car wash does the rest, right? Well, our, our Christian life is, is not so different. We don't do the work of transformation ourselves. We just position ourselves so that God can do the work of transformation in our lives. That's what he calls us to do. Paul told Timothy that part of, part of becoming instruments of God... The, the instruments that he can use as a matter of training. He says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is something we don't think about much. In a sermon on heaven some time ago, I think I talked more about uh, what our responsibilities would be in heaven. Scripture says some things about that, that we will have roles and responsibilities in heaven. What Paul is telling us here is that training for godliness matters both now and it matters for the next life. It is preparation for the next life as well. And whatever our roles will be there that God has for us. And the primary tool that God uses to provide that training is, is his word. Uh, first Tim, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I'm going to use the ESV version here, the English Standard Version it says, all scripture is breathed out or inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And, and here's something I hadn't seen before, and that is that man, when you, the uh, ESV text note indicates that man here, uh, the connotation is messenger, that the messenger of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. How are you equipped right now as a messenger of God? Are you equipped in, in the way that God needs you to be? Uh, to be uh, an instrument, a messenger of God to the, to the people around you. Training versus trying. Um, 
You know, I, I kind of um, enjoyed what Michael did on the piano this morning, and it, it looks like fun. And uh, I'm thinking about telling him that I'd like to do that next week. And maybe I could play the piano and lead people in worship. And I'm anticipating that, that when I suggest that to him, he's going to say something like, well, Gary, do you have any training in that area? And I'd say no, but, you know, I, I just think I can, I can wing it. I can try hard. If I try hard, I think I can do it. From the looks on your faces, you aren't so sure. It's not, it, it wouldn't end well, is it? It wouldn't end well, would it? No, because, because Michael spent years of training and discipline and, and practice to do what he does. How about, um, how about athletics? There are a couple of you that I know are in training for marathons. A couple of the women here are in training for marathons or half marathons. And I'm thinking about, you know, I'd like to run a marathon. I'm thinking about just showing up, you know, on that day and saying, would you mind if I just ran with you on, on that day? Well, what's your training schedule like, they would say. And I'd say, well, you know, I'm not going to train. I don't have time for that. But I'll just show up and I'll try hard and I'll compensate for it by trying harder. Well, that won't end well either, will it? You see, there are all kinds of things in life that require to be proficient at. They require training and discipline, don't they? And sometimes we treat our spiritual life, our life with God, as if it's the only thing in the world that doesn't require any, any training and, and discipline, but it does. Growing in our life with God requires training and self-discipline, and, and that is how we position ourselves in a way that God can bless us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So what does spiritual training in in godliness look like? Well, there are some time-honored practices uh, called spiritual disciplines that have been been handed down uh, by Christians throughout the centuries uh, that we can learn from. And and a couple of those are uh, solitude, silence, and and meditation. I'd like to take a closer look at those in the remaining time together. And, And what they allow us to do What spiritual disciplines allow us to do is position ourselves in such a way that the Holy Spirit can do his work through us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Author and uh, theologian Dallas Willard says this about spiritual disciplines, uh, that they're activities within our power that we engage in to allow God to accomplish indirectly in us what we cannot accomplish by our own direct effort. That is spiritual transformation. For example, we can't make ourselves more holy directly. We can't make ourselves more, more loving, uh, more righteous, uh, more humble. Be careful about praying for humility. Uh, but what we can do is position ourselves before God in such a way that he can progressively reveal more and more of Christ's character in those various areas of our lives. And spiritual disciplines are not just one more religious task list. They're not just something more to do, to add to our list. In fact, they should never become an end in themselves. They don't earn us anything. They uh, just position us where God can pour his grace through us to transform us. Richard Foster explains it like this in Celebration of Discipline. He says, the life that is pleasing to God is not a series of religious duties. We have only one thing to do namely to experience a life of relationship and intimacy with God. Uh, God doesn't call us to an endless task list. That's why, that's why we're called human beings, not human doings, right? Uh, our first order of business is to know God. 
If we do that, everything else will fall into place. Foster goes on, by themselves the spiritual discipline can do nothing. They only get us to the place where something can be done. They're God's means of grace. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that's poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where he can bless us. Three of those disciplines, uh, two are solitude and silence, making space to hear the Holy Spirit. You know, we're addicted to activity in our world, aren't we? And uh, sometimes if there's a little bit of silence, we try to fill it up with something. We turn on the radio. I'm good at turning on CNN. If it's quiet in the house, you know, I'll turn on CNN because I'm kind of a, kind of a news guy. Um, but the point is that, uh, that endless activity is not good for us and it's not good for our relationship with God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. In contemporary society, Foster says, our adversary, that is Satan, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he'll rest satisfied. You know, folks, Satan doesn't have to destroy us, does he? He just has to distract us in order to neutralize us for the things of God. God never gives us more to do than what we can do. If you have more to do than what you can do, it's probably self-inflicted, and me too. It's self-inflicted. We just fill up our lives with more and more activities until there's no white space left and and there's no time for solitude or or reflection. Jesus said, uh, and, and the thing is that the Holy Spirit will not compete. God will not compete for our attention. Now, you can't wedge the Holy Spirit in between CNN and high-fiber cereal on five, five minutes before you rush out the door in the morning. It doesn't work like that. Jesus set the example for us, and, and you see this many, many times in Scripture, but yeah, one instance is in Mark 1, 32. He was teaching early in his ministry. He was teaching in Capernaum. And, of course, as he healed people, hundreds of people came out to be, to be healed. And so... In Mark 1, 32 through 35, it says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And here you go. Rising very early the next morning. Now, he was tired. Yes, he was a son of God, but he also lived in a human body. He was whipped. But what did he do? He made time the next morning. Rising very early the next morning, while it was still dark, this was O dark 30, folks. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. You see, Jesus carved out time. He made time for solitude. That's, that's how we know it was so important. And he did that all the time. He was the son of God. If he needed to do that, don't you think that you and I need to do that as well? Dallas Willard uh, describes the impact that solitude can have on our life with God. He says, In drawing aside, we seek to rid ourselves of the corrosion of soul that accrues from constant interaction with others and the world around us. In this place of quiet communion, we discover again that we do have souls, that we indeed have inner beings to be nurtured. Then we begin to experience again the presence of God in the inner sanctuary, speaking to and interacting with us. We understand anew that God will not compete for our attention. We must arrange time for communion with him as we draw aside 
in solitude and silence. Solitude and silence set us up for meditation. I think one of the most important of the spiritual disciplines. Uh, this week is nuts and bolts of the Christian life. How do we grow in our life with God? Very often we're, we're good at, in church, we're good at telling you, this is what you need to be like, but we never tell you how to get there. Or sometimes we don't tell you how to get there. And that, that's what this is about. How, how do you get there? How, to posi- how do you position yourself to grow in your life with God? Well, meditation is a big part of that. What is meditation anyway? Well, it's Christian meditation very simply is the ability to hear God's voice and obey his word. Those two things. Hear God's voice and, o- and obey his word. And there are dozens of examples in meditation in Scripture. If you go in the back in your concordance, look under meditate, meditation, meditates, you'll see dozens of examples of meditation and how, and how it's focused. Here are a couple. In Psalm 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the, the Psalm 1 man, uh, but his delight is in the law or instruction of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Again, in Psalm 119, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Uh, Psalm 145, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Look at the different things that people meditate on there. What's the purpose for meditation? Well, it's to immerse us in the presence of God so that the, God's word and the Holy Spirit can uh, speak to us and transform us over time. Now, there's an age-old uh, pattern for meditation. It's called uh, Lectio Divina, and all that means is spiritual reading. We don't want to make this too complicated. It's not. It, it is just uh, finding time, carving out a little piece of solitude that we can connect with God so that we, he can speak into our lives in, in a way that transforms us over time. That's what this is about. There are four elements in, in Lectio Divina. It's been practiced by Christians for centuries. Some of you probably practice it already. The first part is, is listening. That is, look at, at a small portion of Scripture, just a verse or two. And, and let me back up a second. There, there is a place for reading big chunks of Scripture. There is a place for a Bible reading plan. And I, and I put one in your, your bulletin today, both a one-year plan for New Testament and a one-year plan for the whole Bible if you're, if you're feeling especially ambitious. That's one way to read the Bible that is important, to get a grasp of the larger picture. Uh, studying things like studying meditation, studying faith, uh, studying a particular character, all those things are Bible study, and those are important too. This is not that. This is connecting with God so he can speak into your life in a brief moment of time, in a small portion of Scripture, so he can change your life over time and get you on his frequency for the day. Listening, praying briefly that God would open our heart to understand his truth, that he would reveal himself as we read. Ask God to show himself to you in Scripture and then look at a couple of verses and he will, he will do that. You read through the, the verse a few times reflectively to see if there's anything that God causes you to jump out. And, and then reflection. And, and all these steps kind of run together in a circular fashion. But reflecting on what we're hearing from God. Listening not only with your mind but with your heart. This is not a cognitive exercise. There's no test. And it's not about accumulating information here or even learning something new that we didn't know before in terms of facts. What it's about is connecting with God, hearing him speak to us through, it, through his word. And so as we turn it over and over in our mind, what is it that God is emphasizing that he's bringing out of this passage? Maybe a familiar passage you've seen many times before. And then praying. Reflection naturally spills over into praying. Lord, thanks for that word of encouragement. Thanks for showing me that something I've never seen before. 
thank you for pointing that out in my life because I, I see from what you've, you've shown me that I'm disobedient in this area of my life and I need to change that. Or thank you for that expression of love, Lord, something like that. And, and then praying it back to God, obeying it. The point of this little exercise, the point of Lectio Divina or meditating on God's word is that we're changed somehow. How am I going to live my life differently because of what God's shown me in Scripture this morning? And, and, and that's where we pray it back to him and even journal a couple lines perhaps if, uh, if you keep a journal. Now, I'd, I'd like to practice that with you for just a moment before we part company this morning. Um, and I'd like to look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So either look at it up on the screen or, um, or in your Bible if, if you choose. But let me follow the pattern that we just talked about. I'm going to ask God to reveal himself, and then I'm going to ask you what he's shown you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that you speak to us through your word all the time. And I just ask that as we look into your word this morning, as we focus on these couple verses, that you would speak to each heart here this morning, that you'd give us a word from you uh, as, as to what you want us to learn and what you want us to apply to our lives. Thank you, Lord. We, we, uh, we pray expectant, expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, look over those, read, quickly read through those couple verses uh, a couple different times. Uh, slow down a little bit. See if there isn't anything that, that God is kind of lifting to your attention in those verses. Does anybody see anything in the first line there? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What do you see in the first line? What, what does that mean to you? You know, you can, um, you can emphasize different words. You can emphasize the word trust. You can emphasize the word all. You can emphasize the word heart in order to look at it from different directions. You're turning it over in your mind, reflecting on it. What do you see? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Just sing it out. Surrender all. Okay. Yeah. All your heart, right? You're not reserving a little portion for yourself, but all your heart. What else do you see? Obedience. Obedience. Okay. What What he wants more than anything else from us is that we trust him. That's the essence of obedience. What else? Okay, the number one spot in your life. Yeah, all your heart means he's the number one thing in your life. Okay, what about the second line? Do not lean on your own understanding. What is God saying to you about that? (laughs) We call each other idiots. I don't think he calls us idiots. He loves us too much. But I get, your, I get your drift. No, we're not. We're not. <laughs> well, at, at least that, that's a very direct way of saying it. But what, what, what he's saying, the message is correct, Craig. And the message is that you can't rely on your own understanding. Right? What else do you see in that line? The reason we don't do line one is because we're doing <laughs> Very good. Yeah, the reason we don't do line one is because we're doing line two. That's right. We tend to, we tend to turn uh, life, even our life with God, into a do-it-yourself project, don't we? And, and what God's saying is, wait a minute, your understanding's not bigger, not, not big enough. I see the big picture. I can see down the road far, farther than you can. You need to trust me, which, which is the point of line three, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. What is God saying to you about that line? In all your ways, acknowledge him. 
He's in control, not me. Very good. God's speaking to us. Give him the glory. Yeah. Acknowledge God as God. And what it says to me too is, in all my ways. That means in every area of my life. Not just my devotional life. My life at work. My life with my family. My, my money. My time. Am I acknowledging God in every area of my life or not? How about line number four? He will make your paths straight or, or direct your paths, as another version said. What does that tell you? What is God speaking to you? I'm sorry? He is the light? He has a plan? Yeah. He's faithful. And it's the right plan. Yeah. He, he, he will, yeah, actually he straightens out the curves, right? And smooths the bumps. That's what, that's what that means when it says paths straight. It actually means he's going to smooth your path. Remember those day, paths in those days were rocky and rough. And, and it was important that a path be smooth. Also that he's going to give us direction for life. That is a promise. This verse contains a promise that God is going to give us direction for life if we will acknowledge him in every area of our lives. Wow. And, and I find that works in the workplace and it, and it works in our family and, and everything else if we will acknowledge God in, in those areas. Okay. Uh, we've just done uh, Lectio Divina. I mean, we've just done spiritual reading and reflection and meditation together as a group. That's something that you can do or probably many of you are doing uh, from day to day and it's a process by which God will transform our lives. The last step is we need to, to ask God to, rein, to uh, cement that to uh, reinforce that in our lives. Let's just do that a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the insights that you've revealed to us together as a group today. And, and we ask you to, um, to cement those things in our lives, to impress those on our hearts so that we live differently as a result of what you've shown us today in, in your word. Thank you, Father, for your grace and, and your direction for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me share with you one example of a person who lived like this, who was a, a person who lived um, in a state of, um, well, not in a constant state of meditation, I don't mean to say that, but, but she took seriously her communion with God. Her name was Frances Jane Crosby. She's better known as Fanny Crosby. She was born in 1820, and she was born near New York. Her father died when she was young, but her mother and her grandmother were godly women who read the scripture to her, told her Bible stories, and, uh, and influenced her life to a, a great degree. At an early age, they noticed that she had a great interest in, in and a talent for poetry and songwriting. In fact, she, she uh, wrote her first poem at age 8. By age 10, she had memorized the first four books of the Bible, and, the fir- and I wanted to say the first four Gospels, but the only Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, she'd memorized those Gospels as well by the, by the age of 10. In the 1850s and 1860s, Fanny Crosby became a prolific writer of hymns. She soon became one of America's most beloved Christian songwriters with favorites like To God Be the Glory, Blessed Assurance, Redeemed, Jesus Keep Me, near the cross, and all the way my Savior leads me, and many others. Fanny said she never wrote a a hymn without asking, quote, the good Lord to be my inspiration in what I'm about to do. She would pray and meditate on God's word until the ideas began to flow, 
and then she would begin to write hymns, and she kept as many as 40 hymns in her head at one time before she would dictate them to someone to uh, publish them. And although she often wrote about the beautiful pictures of love and redemption that God gave her while she meditated, she never saw any of those images with her human eyes because, you see, she was blind for 95 years. In fact, she called her blindness God's gift to her so that she could write songs for his glory. She said that she could not have written thousands of hymns had she been distracted by mere human eyesight. One of the best known of Fanny Crosby's hymns of praise was one entitled Saved by Grace. And the line in the chorus was, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. In one of God's beautiful ironies, the first face that Fanny Crosby ever saw was the face of her Savior after she'd written over 8,000 hymns of praise to Jesus. I can't wait to meet her and to, to hear the music that she is making now with the angels in heaven. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for the life and example of Fanny Crosby and uh, the other servants that we talked about today. And, and Lord, I, you said you want, us, you want to mold us and shape us into your instruments of righteousness. You want us to, to demonstrate to the world in a, in a tangible way the life and the character of Jesus Christ. And, and we pray, Lord, that you would strip away in anything that disguises the life of Jesus within us and, and that you would reveal Christ through each one of us. And, and I pray that you'd begin that process of transformation, that you'd complete that good work which you've begun in us, uh, that, that you'd begin that uh, today in, in each one here, that we radiate the love and the character of Jesus Christ in the interactions that we have this week. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Lord. Uh, we love you. And uh, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.